listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. All right, listeners, welcome back to the show. Today we have a special guest with us. He is one of the founding members of Real Blue Spruce Holdings. Today we have Adam Adams. Adam, welcome to the show. What's up, Sterling? Thanks for having me. Well, uh, usually we just kick off our show with, you know, give us a little rundown of of your backstory. Where did you come from? How did you get into real estate? What are you doing today? Absolutely. A backstory. Where did I come from? How did I get into real estate? And what am I doing today? I'll try to sum that up super fast for you. So where I come from is Utah originally. So I grew up in, in the state of Utah. You know, randomly enough, I was actually born on a polygamy colony. So everybody's, uh, everybody's just asked. They're like, oh, he's from Utah. Was he born on a polygamy call? <laughs> yes. The truth is I was, and I'm not lying. So that's really how I started, right? And, I, and so this subsect of, of the Mormonism culture was a polygamy colony. And I actually grew up that way. And later on in life, my mom left and she took my sister and I, and we grew up with my stepdad, who was an entrepreneur and a real estate investor. So ever since I was five years old is when my mom started to date this big shot real estate investor guy who had, who had multi-units all over, self-storage units, land everywhere. And it was fairly normal for me growing up with my stepdad. I used to go on to one of our fields and I used to take the tractor. I was eight years old and I made jumps with my bicycle for my bicycle. My dad, my stepdad said it was totally fine. I could make jumps for with the bicycle, with the tractor, so long as I smoothed them out with a box scraper at the end. So growing up in, in rural that, parts of Utah, that's having an ex- fun doing that, that. That's an extreme version of pick up your toys when you're done. <laughs> right, right. Flatten right. out the land again. Flatten it out. <laughs> So I remember also around that time, I was eight or nine years old and my stepdad called me on a house phone. We didn't have like regular cell phones back then. So he called me on the house phone and said, hey, one of the, one of the tenants at the duplex, which was like next door to our house, is going to pay their rent. Do you mind just going to collect it? So actually, I have a story before I was even 10 years old of collecting rent So it's kind of been embedded in me. My dad, my stepdad used to, I call him dad. He's like, I really grew up with him. So it's hard for me to to say stepdad, but that's how it is, how it was. I grew up and learned everything from him. I was running wires in some of our properties with him, hanging lights with him. And I learned all this stuff. He was also a general contractor. So that's, that's where I came from. Like, that's how I grew up. We had cell storage units. I was I think 12 years old when I was plowing the snow at our self-storage units. So I kind of grew up thinking this was normal. And my dad was like, you got to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You got to save 10%. You got to invest 10%. And I was just like, dad, this stuff is so boring. You're paying me a dollar an hour. And like, if I give 10%, that's only a dime. And plus, like, then I only have 90 cents. What would I do with that? <laughs> so this is, this is like how Adam Adams really grew up with a stepdad who, who was all into this entrepreneurship. 
we had the board board game called cash flow before anyone else ever heard of it and it's right there behind you we had this game before almost anyone ever heard of it my dad is very well read he reads a book a week at least it only takes him two or three nights to read a book and he loves it and he's always tried to talk me into it we were talking in the pre-interview adam adams is a visionary. Visionaries, we want, our head is in the clouds. That's really what it means. Head is in the clouds. We're always thinking about the future. And sitting down and trying to read a book is not something that ever sounded fun for me. So in college, my dad, my stepdad finally said, you know what? If this kid isn't going to jump into real estate on his own, I'm just going to give him a gift for Christmas. So 2005 comes around, I get this piece of land and I wasn't grateful enough when I got that piece of land. My, my stepdad gifted me a piece of land and a week later he said, hey, before the first of the year, I need you to pay me a hundred bucks for that land. And I was just like, dad, I'm paying for books. I'm, I'm paying for my own rent. I'm, <laughs> I'm working as a server. Like, where am I going to come up with an extra hundred bucks? But I found a way. I got him a hundred bucks. I was pretty upset about it because he only paid a hundred dollars for it. So I was like, why would he, this is some great Christmas present. You're just pawning it off on me. But a couple of years later, I sold it for 12,500 bucks. If you do the math, it's a huge return right. off of a hundred dollars. And I finally decided I'll read that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So I found out from reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, that Robert Kiyosaki was not a single family investor. Nobody knows that. Everybody hears that Robert Kiyosaki's this, this entrepreneurship guru, this real estate mogul, and they assume, because that's what they know, is that he probably did single family. But the truth is, he never did. He started to focus on multifamily syndication. I learned this in 2000 seven, right after selling that piece of land. And so I decided 2007, what I'm going to do is multifamily. So I started as a property manager, 2007 was, it was awesome. Like because of the market going up and everything like that in 2007 in Utah, the piece of 18 plex that I was managing went from a $1 million value to a $2 million value Basically, I raised rents from 550 to 900 and lowered the expenses as best I could. And he, he sold it and made a million bucks. And I was expecting some type of bonus. I was like, dude, <laughs> well, I'm going to get like 10% of that. You're no, I, I, my bonus was <laughs> my bonus. Wrong side of that equation. Yes, a little bit. But I, I learned exactly what I needed to learn to be able to be a multifamily investor. So I, you mentioned to me that one of the things that you love to do on this show is talk about 2008. Like anyone who was kind of like before 2008 or after 2008 or what happened in 2008. I'll be honest with you. I, after managing that property and feeling like I was invincible on property management, I bought my first multifamily in 2008, at the very end of 2008. It was around 2011 that I had to give that property back to the lender. I called the lender and said, look, I don't, it's already three days past when I'm supposed to pay you on the first and today's like the third. I don't know where it's gonna come from. Cause for two years I had been supporting my residents, my tenants. A lot of them were not paying me. 
And because like their jobs were just kind of scarce and the money was a little bit scarce in 2009, 10, 11. And I was, I was just like, I never called the lender. I was paying the, the mortgage like out of my pocket, out of my pocket. And then I literally had nothing. My credit cards were maxed out in 2011 and I didn't know what to do in 2011. So I gave it back to the lender. And that was a huge eye opener to me. And it's changed my life. I actually had my tail between my leg for a few years until 2015. And that's kind of where my story picks back up. And, and so that's where I came from. 2015, I got involved in almost everything. Today, I'm a part owner in 1500 doors. And so that's multifamily apartments, just like Robert Kiyosaki did. So I'm finally living my dream. I'm finally out of the rat race. If you all know what that means from the cash flow game, I'm finally at a position where my expenses are taken care of by my passive income. So that's where I am today. And I'm kind of teaching and coaching and mentoring other people to get into multifamily kind of the way that I did without making the horrible mistake that I made in 2008, 9, 10, and 11. So there you go. Awesome. awesome story. So I want to go back a little bit. You said you were a property manager. What does that look like? Did you go work for a property manager? Did you start a property management business? Super good question. In Utah, where I'm from, and I now live in Colorado, the law is the same in these two states. I don't know the law in your state, wherever you are listening from. So there's no way you can take this to the bank and just do it exactly this way. But in, in, in Utah, and also in Colorado, the way that it works is you either have to be licensed to be a property manager as a real estate agent, you have to go and pass your license, or there's three ways, or you have to be an employee of a property manager who's licensed. The third way is you have to live at one of the properties of the owner and if you live there, you can manage as many of their properties as possible. So long as you live, you're a resident of one of the buildings. And so I was a resident of the 18 unit building. And I also managed his fourplex. So I was a resident at the 18 unit in Springville, Utah. I was a property manager of his fourplex in Provo, Utah. And I was a property manager of his condo in Orem, Utah. So I managed three of his properties in three different cities and I mowed the lawns. I did most of the maintenance, all that kind of stuff. But the big one was the, the 18 unit because he was able to sell it for a huge profit. But yeah, that's how it worked. I wasn't licensed. I didn't technically have my own company. It was really just, I was a W2 employee of the owner and I lived at one of his spots. And that's how I was legally able to manage those three properties, those 23 doors. So did you raise your own rent? <laughs> did I raise my own rent? I had free rent. I actually didn't pay my rent. It was part of the whole thing. So no, I didn't raise it. It wouldn't have affected anyways, because he would have wiped it out. Right. But yeah, with Almost, I was able to flip most of the properties, and they were paying anywhere from around five ten to six hundred. And I changed most of them to anywhere from eight hundred to around nine fifty. And so that took about a year to do all that, and just kind of we might get into kind of why 
the value of the property is based on the income because it's a little different than a single family. We might be able to talk about that later on this show. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely get into it real quick. I heard about your your terrible disaster and I would like to hear more about it and about what you think went wrong and how you position yourself differently today to make sure that kind of thing doesn't happen again. But before that, do you have a home run you could tell us about? Yes, a home run. So many home runs. There's a couple of disasters. There's a couple of mediocres and there's a couple of home runs. What is a good one? Well, let me give you the my first home run that that really stood out to me. It was my first syndication. It wasn't a huge one. It was like 16 units, a little smaller than that 18 unit that I had managed a few years before. But um, it was a 16 unit apartment community. And the rents in the area were 1100. And the rents of the apartment were averaging around 850. So we had room to grow about $250 per unit. And that might not sound like a huge amount. Like you're like, well, what are you going to do with $250? Well, just like take the $250 and multiply it by 16. And then you, what you do is you basically divide it by a cap rate. So 250 multiplied by 16 units is with a room is four grand a month. Times times 12. Uh, Yeah. Times 12 months is 48,000. Again, not going to break the bank, 48 grand. You know, there's a lot of people that wouldn't notice that. There's a lot of people that that's their whole year's income. If you divide it by a 6% cap rate, it's 800,000. So basically just by raising each of these rents to what's normal in the area, we made $800,000 into our pockets immediately. So it's kind of cool. Like that's huge, but that's not even the reason why I say this is a home run. I think that this is a home run because when you're getting into this syndication business, it sounds overwhelming. It feels like a lot. And there's pieces around the due diligence. There's pieces around just the acquisition, trying to find the deal. There's pieces around flying out there. There's pieces around locking up a property where you actually have the seller say, I trust you that you're going you're gonna to close on it. There's pieces around making sure that the lender will qualify us. And there's pieces around asking other people for the down payment because it's right. called syndication. That means we're going to raise the equity from other people, OPM. So like why I say this is such a amazing deal is because not only because we got to, we, you can make a lot of money on it, but my returns were infinite because I didn't use any of my own money to close on this multi-million dollar property. My return was infinite because I have leveraged a team, leveraged other people's money. And in that one, and some of the others that I closed on, I didn't use my own money to go into the deal, which I think is incredible just to think about. And the last reason why I really want to say that this really felt like a win to me is just because it proved the concept. Because sure. you start to like think about doing real estate, but if you do a deal in real estate, like even if it's a wholesale deal or whatever, you grow 
the self-confidence. Like you wanted the self-confidence, you thought you had it, but like you really get it when you close that first deal. So when I was planning on doing syndication and we finally closed on a syndication, I felt like a million dollars, you know, let alone the fact that there was a lot of upside in the property, let alone the fact that, that it took a lot to kind of raise the money and all this kind of stuff. But I, I, I felt like that was a huge win because what it did to my psychology within my own head. Absolutely. I I know my, my proof of concept property, I always say it made me and I've, I've told the story on two different podcasts this week. And I I mean, I light up every time I tell it just because the, the psychology, I mean, not only to everybody else did it make me, but to myself, it gave me the confidence to go after everything else. So I definitely understand that, that sensation. So how did you find this deal and what was it structured like? How much of that 800000 went back to the investors? How much of it came to you? Okay. So how we found it, first question to answer is that I jumped on a bigger pockets platform. If your listener doesn't know about it, there, it's a pretty cool place to network with other people in this business. So I jumped on there and I was able to trigger some keywords. And so this is something that you can do on bigger pockets. Like if anyone ever says a certain term, you get an email automatically. So that's what I did. I put, I made a term, a keyword term, 8% cap rate. That was my keyword term. If anyone ever talked about an 8% cap rate, which is kind of how these multifamily are underwritten, how they are valued, then I would get an email automatically and I could jump on it. So that happened. Somebody said that they were selling something for an eight cap. I got an email, I jumped on and I reached out to the broker and I said, we're going to close on this. You know, it's in our price range. We can do it. And we ended up closing on it about six or seven or eight months later. It it was between six and eight months later. You could almost have a baby from the time that we found the deal to the time that we closed the deal. Why, yeah. why so long? And like, I know with smaller deals, I typically, I'm trying to close tomorrow and I want to beat everybody to the punch. Now with these larger multifamily deals, that, that one of my concern going into syndication is like, well, do I need to have all the money lined up before I even get it under contract? How much time am I going to have to close? Am I going to have, am I, you know, going to be fighting other investors if I give too much time? So can you shine some light on that part of that aspect of it? Yeah, for sure. All of the reasons why it got slowed down that might be able to be valuable to the listener is going to do something like this on their own. The first reason that something got slowed down is because we had never talked to a lender. We had just gotten involved into a multifamily education with a group. And we were told that, you know, these are the things you have to do. And we just had a team of four at the time. And we just started doing all the things that we could. But we didn't yet have money lined up. We didn't yet have a relationship with a lender. I mean, we kind of did the ready fire aim, which is what everyone seems to teach you. In my own coaching program, I teach people ready, aim, fire because I've, sure. I've felt the stress of what ready, fire, <laughs> aim does. So I, I teach other people how to really be prepared for everything. But um, ready, fire, aim meant that we didn't have a lender lined up. And so we started to look for lenders and 
the lenders. We just didn't know who to trust and who not to trust. And a lot of these lenders ask you for $15,000 up front before they ever look at anything. That's a lot of money, 15 grand or even six grand or, or whatever they're asked for. They're, it's usually a lot more than 10 or 12,000. And we thought at the time we were just like, could this be real? Like these guys are probably trying to scam us. They're probably just going to collect the 12 grand, 15 grand, and then do nothing and just be like, oh, I'm sorry, you, you didn't get approved. And so we were scared. So, so we spoke with lender to lender to lender, just kind of trying to avoid having to put money down. And ultimately that slowed us down a lot. That slowed us down a couple of those months. So what is and, the money what is the money down for? So lenders it's a good question. I don't it's like a it's like a fee that the lender's going to spend a lot of time doing things like a phase 1 environmental study, potentially a phase 2 environmental study. They're going to do things like feasibility studies, which means that they basically take engineers to really under write the deal. And because they have, you know, highly paid staff that that needs to do this, they want to not be in, they don't want to be playing the game with somebody who isn't serious. So they do ask you for upfront fees just to even see if you qualify. So I've heard of other syndicators saying that they go through those processes of, of doing the, the environmental studies and stuff themselves. So if the lender is doing that already, does that mean you don't have to do it? Or? My opinion could be wrong, and that's okay. I, I, I admit that I've been wrong a time or two. The syndicators that have told you that they do a phase one environmental study on their own are either not being completely open and honest of the real process, or maybe they are not using a qualified lender. So for us, we're using lenders that this is the normal thing for them. We don't usually have, we have to pay for the environmental study, but it's not done by, we don't pay the environmental study I might have misunderstood. Maybe they just, that's a cost associated. There's, if you're going to get it financed with certain lenders, the environmental studies usually going to come out of that lender normally. And they'll usually want us to pay for it up front. So it just depends on how, how they talk about these things. But ultimately I'm paying for it, but I'm, paying the lender to pay somebody else, a gotcha. third party for them to do it. So, okay. okay, well, what did I learn? <laughs> I learned that I learned that you should have your lenders lined up. You know, it's funny in the single family industry, if you're looking to buy your first home, I guarantee you 100% that if you're going to go to a broker, that broker's not going to start showing you the houses until you have a pre-approval letter from a lender. Because they don't want to waste their time. So like in the single family industry, this is obvious. But to me in the multifamily, it wasn't obvious. I just wasn't prepared for it. I wasn't ready for it. I didn't get lined up with a lender automatically. So that was strike one. You know, that was the big, uh, one of the big problems. The next big problem is raising the equity. 
So I've been told if you find a good deal, the money will come. Sterling, you probably heard this. If you find a good deal, the money automatically follows. So, well, that's actually untrue. And I've known a lot of people <laughs> who have found good deals and never gotten the money because they don't have relationships. They don't have sure. systems. They don't have a team. They don't have a track record. They don't have, they're not prepared. It's ready, fire, aim. Again, they don't have things lined up and they go and put something under contract, put down an earnest money deposit, can't raise the money. They lose their earnest money, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So if you're listening and you want to know another thing to avoid, don't go ready, fire, aim when it comes to raising equity for a syndication. You want to start doing the equity before you start doing the deal because you're going to look more credible to the broker. You're going to look more credible to the seller and you're not going to have to be stressed the day that you're under contract and then you cuss to yourself and you're like, oh, blank. How am I going to be there? How am I going to do this? Like, Because you're now behind the eight ball and you now quote, need the money. Like, and when you need the money, it's harder like, the, it's much harder to find. It's like those investors are, have now become bumblebees and bumblebees can smell your fear and then they sting you. You'll get stung <laughs> when you're scared. And that's exactly what's going to happen to you if you don't already have the money, because once you need it, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Maybe I'll do your next deal. Maybe I'll do your, not this one, you know, but you have been taught your whole life. If you find a good deal, the money automatically follows. So that's the second thing. The third thing, which was interesting is that the seller had an open permit. The seller owned the property cash and he owned multiple other properties. And <laughs> He pulled a permit to get something done like a long time before that, but it was never signed off by the city. So, in fact, they didn't find this out until the title company was pulling title and saw kind of like a clouded title, similar to if you have like a lien against the property. Yeah. The, these open permits get shown at the title company and this flag came up. And the seller, I'm not bad-mouthing them in any way, but they just kind of felt superior to like what needs to be done. They felt like they were above it. They felt like they were multimillionaires. They owned all their properties cash. I don't have to focus on that. I need to just go on vacation. So they took quite a while to close that permit. What ended up having to be done is I think that the back patio concrete stairs needed to be demolished again and re-poured again just to close the permit. And the seller was like waiting and waiting and waiting to do that, trying to fight with the city about that. And it all of a sudden, like they realized that they had to do this. So they demoed it, but they paid for it again. And so then we got a closed permit. So that helped. I'm trying to think there was, there was probably a few other things that were involved that I don't recall, but I will tell you a couple that didn't necessarily slow us down, but I learned on the first deal because these two things are going to be important to you. When you're syndicating, when you're doing a multifamily syndication, what's interesting is even though you might have your company, like my company's called Blue Spruce Holdings, Blue Spruce 
Holdings. I live in Colorado and that's the Colorado tree. And so we call ourselves Blue Spruce Holdings. But when we buy a property, it's not owned by Blue Spruce Holdings. What's interesting is that we have to start a new entity. So every time you're doing a syndication, you have new, yeah, single purpose LLC, right? And what's funny is even if Blue Spruce has been in business for years, that new LLC that's owning the property, let's just call it 123 Main Street. Like 123 Main Street LLC is buying 123 Main Street and it's a new entity which makes the utilities company freak out. Oh no, this company's brand new. I'm not sure if they're going to be able to pay their bills. So we had no idea that we were going to run into this, but we learned as we were closing that the utilities company asked for prepaid utilities. We had to actually pay a deposit ahead of time for I think a year's worth of utilities because it was a brand new entity. Not only that, but the insurance company, the insurance, like they're like, oh no, this is a new company. And like we had to pay either, I think it was like 15 months of prepaid insurance, property insurance. And so we had to pay a whole years of insurance. We budgeted for, you know, monthly insurance payments, but we had to pay 15 months on day one. And we had to pay this deposit for utilities on day one. And there was a bunch of other things. And I don't want to scare the listener from like, oh crap, like why would I do that? That sounds complicated. It sounds complicated, but you can do this. I just, I guarantee there's a way for you to do this. So have you since found a workaround for that? Or is that just something you underwrite and go? There are workarounds. Good question. There are workarounds. There are companies out there that are basically insurance insurancers. And basically what you do is you pay them some type of deposit. It's a small amount. And then they pay the insurance company the amount. So you're in at a lower amount and they're in at a bigger amount. And it's pretty interesting. I think that they have something for insurance and something for the utilities. So yes, but I will be completely honest with you. I'm not the underwriter in my company. We have a whole acquisitions team. We have a whole underwriting team. We have a whole like asset management team and they understand and they're used to the numbers more than I am personally. So how much of that deposit is, is something that I don't usually look at, but there is services out there that help you not to be able to have to pay those. And we did learn it throughout. You're not setting me up very well for the next question I was going to ask, which is how do you underwrite these deals? Uh, Well, I will say just kind of a few things about the underwriting that I'm more comfortable with. And these are just like some of the high level differences. Most people know about single family residences and they understand that you look at comparable cells or comps. They call them comps. It really just means it's a comparable cell. So if you have a ranch or a split level in one neighborhood on one specific street on one side of the tracks and in that same neighborhood on the same side of the street on the same side of the tracks, it's also a split level and it's also around the same size and it also has a two-car garage and it's also on a quarter of an acre lot. Well, 
this other one sold recently for 200,000. So this one is also going to be 200,000. That's how a single family is, is underwritten is what's the comparable sale. They want to compare apples to apples. You don't want to look at this side of the tracks versus that side of the tracks. And you don't want to look at split level versus ranch style because ranch are going to be a higher price per square foot. So you want to have good comps. You want to be on this side of the street, this side of the tracks, this side of the freeway, et cetera. Multifamily has some of that involved, but it's really more focused on its income. So when you're asking, how do you underwrite these deals? you'll do a similar thing as you're kind of doing with the single family, but its value is going to be represented by how much income it has. And not just income, but net operating income. So basically, if you have two apartment communities and they're on the same side of the tracks and everything else, they're the same size, the same square footage, the same number of units, even let's just say they have the exact same rents already happening, this one's pulling in $100,000 a year and this one's pulling in $100,000 a year and they're, that's the gross. They were both built in the same year and everything. If one of them has a little bit more expenses per month than the other one, you would think, oh, well, they're the same size, the same shape, the same rents. They're obviously going to have the same value. But if one of them just has more expenses, then for some reason that changes this thing called NOI or net operating income. That's basically the income after expenses. So they're both pulling in a hundred grand. One of them has 50% expense ratio and the other one has 60% expense ratio. One of them's going to basically be bringing in 50 grand NOI and the other one is going to be bringing in 40 grand NOI. So basically, if this is in a five cap area, which is a really nice area, the 40 grand divided by a 0.05% is an $800,000 property over there. Mm -hmm. But the other one next door to it's going to be worth a million bucks. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, you're like, it's the same everything, but one of them I can only buy it for 800 grand. The other one I can, I would have to buy a whole, whole million. And so it seems weird, but it's based on the net operating income. So when we go in, underwrite these deals and try to figure out if it's a good deal, we look at the net operating income. We look at the normalized expenses. And what we would say is, look at how high these expenses are. Which one would you rather buy, the million dollar one or the $800,000 one? Well, some people would say, well, the million dollar one's worth more. And yes, it technically is worth more today. But if you buy the million dollar one, you could probably do less things to it to increase the NOI more, which is increasing the value. But if we buy the $800,000 one, if we can normalize those expenses, instead of a 60% expense ratio, maybe we go to a 45% expense ratio. And now it's worth over a million dollars and we can sell it, make a few hundred thousand dollars. This is part of the way to underwrite the deal is just knowing your back end. And so I will tell your listeners, I'll help you understand that there's three ways to approach these multifamily investments. There's the rental way for single family. There's the fix and flip way for single family. And then there's the Goldilocks way. And so I'm, I'm going to give you these three ways just real quick. 
the way that I'm talking about for rentals means a yield play. So write it down. It's a yield play. But that means is you're yielding, you're getting cash flow every month. So it means you're not trying to do a whole bunch to the property. You just want to buy the income. So if you're doing a yield play, your play on which property would have been better is going to be the million dollar property because you don't have to do anything. You already can yield the amount of money. So you might pay more, but you got the yield. The second way is like a fix and flip. And this is a third property down the street that's everything else is the same except nobody lives there. It's run down, it's beaten down, and you can get it for a bottom dollar, 300 grand. But you're going to have to put in another 500 grand just to get it ready, right? So, so this is called a value play, a value play. That means add value, just like you would with a fix and flip. It's more risky, but there's a potential higher reward. So with risk comes reward usually. So that's why they get it for better discount. And I don't do the first way. I don't do the second way. I do what's called the Goldilocks way, which is a light value add, which is buying that $800,000 one, tweaking the management a little bit, and then selling it for over a million dollars, right? That's what I look at. So we underwrite based on understanding what can we do over the next few years to increase its value. And if we find a way that we might be able to pretty close to double investors money in five to six years, then we say this is the kind of property we want. And so we are very conservative to try to get that to make sure that it will really actually happen. But if we find something where it'll cash flow to the investors like 8% or 6% while we own it, but because you're paying down the the mortgage every month, and because you're adding some value through the NOI, the net operating income, which basically in turn makes it so you get that on top. What we want to do is we want to be able to give to our past investors something like a 14% total return each year, like annualized every year, or up to maybe a 20% return annualized each year. So if we find something that has that 14% or better, Mm. then we're going to put in an offer. They just called it LOI, not to be confused with like NOI, net operating income. LOI basically means offer. It stands for letter of intent. That's kind of the way we put down offers. So if we see something that will give us a 14, 15, 16, 17, 18% return to the past investor by the time we sell it in about five or six years, we're all over that. We put in an offer. Yeah. So that's the short version of how to underwrite these deals. There's the mama bear, the papa bear, and the gold and the and the baby bear, the Goldilocks route. And you want to not just look at what it's selling for and what the cap rate is. That's a bad way to look at it. You also want to see what can I do over the next few years to really get some value out of owning this. Awesome. That was a great job explaining that process. Real quick. Before we move on to the radio round, I did have one last question, and it was about your disaster in 2011. I just want to know what you think went wrong, what you learned from it, and how you make sure that type of thing doesn't happen in the future. Perfect. One of the things that went wrong was not doing market analysis before purchasing a property in a certain market. So, 
If I would have spent more time, I would have understood better expansion and contraction. And I would have seen a large amount of expansion and that Utah was, and pretty much the whole nation around that time was kind of coming over the crest and on their way back down. And in general, you don't want to buy something on its way back down. You want to buy it on the way up. So first thing that I did wrong is just, I didn't really do my market research. I didn't spend enough time trying to understand if I was buying in a good place. So that was one thing. The second huge thing that I did wrong was, well, I managed it myself and I'm not saying that in and of itself is wrong, but for me it was wrong because I managed somebody else's property and it was very easy to manage someone else's property. Not because your money, you, you don't yeah. 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 I'm I'm gonna be a stickler with all the residents. You know, I'm gonna be like, look, rent's due or you or you're evicted. But like I lived at my apartment community, I was one of the residents, I told all of the other tenants that I was the owner, and I am a sensitive, kind, soft hearted man that when they said, look, I'm in hard times. I don't know what to do. Can I pay you on Friday? Like I was unable to say, look, the owner, I have to blame it on the owner. Look, the owner won't let me do that. So (laughs) for me, I was managing it myself. I, I didn't do a strong vetting process for my tenants. And in 2008, 9, 10, it was actually tough to find really good tenants. So I just picked anyone who would say that they wanted to live there. So I actually found that, that I was, one of them ended up going to jail. And then we found drugs in their apartment. And so like, while they were in jail, it was just, I did a poor job managing it. I didn't have my systems set up ahead of time. And I usually do background checks. Like when I was the manager for someone else, he told me, you have to do background checks. And when you do it, this is the service that you use to do the background checks. This is the service that you use for credit checks. I was like, why would I deal with background checks and credit checks? (laughs) I just assumed everybody was good. And so that was a huge problem. And then not sticking to your guns when it says rents due on the first, late on the fifth. And you have to pay all these late fees. I just felt so bad about like when times were so tough in 2008, 9, 10, 11, I just felt so horrible, like kicking somebody out. Well, what I could have done is I could have just hired a professional management team. I could have just not told anybody that I was the owner and just said, hey, I represent the owner. And that's all I needed to say is I, I just represent the owner. So there's, I hope that's kind of answers your questions on some of the things that I could have probably done a lot better by managing it myself. And at the same time, uh, and I'm not trying to cop out in any way. I'm just, I think that we can't always blame ourselves for every single thing that happens during a, a time that was as rough as 2008, nine and 10 was already giving to people. I don't think we can blame ourselves completely, but there were certainly things that I could see that I could have done. And then there were certainly other things that may have been a little less into my control that it's about a little bit of timing. The stock market just crashed completely. Lenders froze up and they stopped giving money. There was a lot of 
other factors that were happening at the same time that even if I don't know how I could have fixed them back then, it does allow me to look now because I've been through all that. It allows me to look now with a different pair of glasses when I go into the next deals. Because once you've been through a crash, it's kind of good to invest your money passively with somebody who's, who's felt it because sure. in general, they're a little more conservative because they felt right. what they've had their tail between their legs before. Like they've been really battered and torn and they're going to be more conservative than somebody who's just totally brand new. You're, you're stronger for having been through it. a little. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So real quick, let, and that, that was exactly the answer I was looking for. So thank you. Uh, real quick. A radio round. What's your favorite book? Favorite book? There's too many. I've read 20 so far this year. I have really loved pulling in some good information. I'll say if you haven't yet read Rich Dad Poor Dad, it is a life-changing book if you have never read it. One of the ones that I've read recently that really opened my eyes, I read about six months ago, and it was called Compound Effect. I think it was by Darren Hardy. And it is interesting because it matters to you in your relationships with your, with your spouse, with your girlfriends. It matters to you if you're a, an employee working for someone else. It matters to you with your own children. It matters to you in business. If you're running a business, the compound effect basically will teach you that if you do small things over time and just make a subtle change consistently, that it will compound on itself. And I've been implementing it over the last six months and it's really been life-changing, honestly. Awesome. I'll definitely check it out. What's your favorite quote? My favorite quote came from junior high school when I was in the band and we used to memorize quotes every week. And my favorite one actually stuck with me forever. And it's about persistence and determination equal omnipotence. So that, that means to me that if I keep doing it so and... It sounds like a spinoff of my favorite quote, which is the Calvin Coolidge quote that... Yeah, that which we persist in doing becomes yeah. easier to do, not that the nature of the thing itself has changed, but the power to do has increased. Yeah, both of those we, we learned at the same time, but, but persistence and determination are omnipotence is the quote that I've lived by since junior high and... It's what got me through. It's what got my tuba to pay for my college. It's basically what got me to, to be able to buy my first apartment in a time that lenders didn't want to lend in the end of 2008. I just asked and asked and asked and asked. And it's really what happened to give me the strength to be able to take six or eight or nine months to close a single deal because. I knew that if I didn't ever quit, it would pay off because omnipotence means endless potential. So if you just keep persisting and be completely determined to do X, Y, Z, you will have endless potential. And I agree with it wholeheartedly. All right, I'm pulling it up. I had this, I had this quote taped to my mirror in college. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent cannot. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. Yep, that's it. 
That's, that's the whole quote. Awesome. So, so what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Oh boy. I knew you were going to ask me that and I, I never really pulled it up and really came up with something because I feel bad about saying this to like your audience. I go snowboarding sometimes. I take salsa dancing with my sweetheart. I play with the kids every single Saturday. I go out with them and just make a memory with them. And I love all of those things. I love salsa dancing. I love exercising. I love CrossFit. I love going and getting out up into the ski slopes. But like outside of work, I always think about like work because it's <laughs> actually truthfully fun for me. Like yeah. I really love growing a business, growing a team, inspiring other people, running my podcast, coaching and mentoring people. Like my work has been something that I actually truly love. Like everybody talks about how they want to retire. I finally hit that last year and I'm, I can't see myself retiring for years and years and years and years because I love it. This is what I, this is my hobby is, Uh is growing my business, growing my portfolio, inspiring others. That's my hobby. So, so my my wife would tell you I'm guilty of the same thing. (laughs) Okay, good. Okay, good. Cause I have felt bad even bringing it up to your audience. Cause I don't want them to be like, he's a workaholic or whatever, you know, (laughs) I've been called that too. (laughs) So look, Adam, this has been one of our most informative and educational shows yet. So I'm really glad that you joined us. I learned a ton. I know our listeners are going to learn a ton. I'm I'm really excited that we kind of shaped the the episode to kind of focus on a lot of the questions that our listeners have been reaching out to me to ask. And you did an awesome job answering. So thank you so much. Where can our listeners find you? How can they get in touch with you? You know, how can they learn more about you? Awesome. Well, I will, I will share one thing that could be valuable to a listener, which has everything to be able to find me and get a hold of me, is just being able to access a four-part free series on just me helping people be able to raise more money because it seems to be a really big problem. People unable to close deals because they don't have the money ready to go. So if they text the word, raising money. I guess that's two words, but if they text it with no spaces or caps don't matter to the phone number, triple five, triple eight. So it's just five, 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 eight, eight, eight. They will be able to have a couple free giveaways as well as watch an hour's worth of content of me just kind of helping them raise more money for their next deal. So that's probably the best place I could point them to. Awesome. Well, I guarantee you that some of our listeners are going to take you up on that. I can, I can count. I can start thinking of them off the top of my head. I know who's going to call me after they hear this episode. What was that number again? What did I text to it? I can already <laughs> see it. I'll so, put it in the show notes. Raising money to 555-888. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adam. Look Thank you, Sterling. To you soon. All right. Have a good one. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at Rent Roll Radio or at Crestworth Capital. 
If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at rentrollradio.com or sterling at crestworthcapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.